Welcome to the Real Triathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Garrick Lowen, here with Nicholas Chase and Jackson Laundry. Welcome back to the Real Triathlon Podcast. Today, we are getting ready, gearing up for Boulder 70.3. That is the last race for qualifications for the Collins Cup. Uh, so obviously Jack, this means a lot to you. You're not racing, but can anybody surpass you that, that is racing right now? Um, Robbie Decker. Technically. Yes. Robbie Decker is American. So he doesn't matter for me. <laughs> um, I looking at the start list, it, it seems to me that the, you know, the, the outside shot of coming in coming into play would be probably Bradley Weiss, Bradley Weiss, however you pronounce it. Um, He's got his best kind of performance is uh, 84 uh, points from his 84 point something from his best three average, 84.43. So if he were to have a really good day, come out, get like 90 to 93 points, he would move up well up into the top 10 and be definitely in the discussion for, um, you know, for getting a selection. Um, but I don't think he could move all the way up into an auto spot, but he could definitely move up into that conversation. There's a couple of the guys who are already qualified who, uh, well, not already qualified, but they're, they're highly ranked. Um, fifth is fifth ranked is, um, our buddy. Why am I blanking on his name? Tyler Butterfield, of course, if you got that out, not auto qualified, but with a good day, he could for sure move up into an auto spot. Um, and then there's Sam Appleton who's already third ranked. So he's just, going out hoping to have a good day and kind of probably prove some fitness uh even though he's already on that team so we got tyler butterball gambles mauricio mendez they could they could you know with a really really good race they could potentially get up into the conversation they'll need like a really really good day but it's totally possible both those guys can definitely do it so we'll see that's on the international side um honestly haven't looked that much on the i don't i don't think there's a lot of europeans doing it um internationals or sorry americans obviously there's a lot of them doing it um and you know there's there's some room for movement there um i do think that the team is like pretty set if to or ben hoffman are race, i imagine they're probably on the start list um if they race they could probably potentially get themselves up into a, a spot where they um where they get into the qualification i mean those guys are so good they just haven't raced a lot this year um i'm just looking if they're even on the list i don't even see them either on the list i think they're just putting it all into iron man like kona man oh andy potts is there he could potentially um chris lieferman he's not auto qualified and he's racing so he could definitely he's he's uh, the dark horse i think he's kind of had a couple ups and downs this year but man when he's on he's just fierce yeah he could totally i mean i think he will get in in that fifth spot even if he stays there um and he could race really, really well for sure. Um, Justin Metzler, he's kind of sitting on the outside there. If he has like a, a really, really solid day, he could get himself into that discussion for sure. So lots going on. I mean, just got to see what happens. Like it's, it's a good, it's going to be a good field and it's going to be raced. I think like a championship race, guys are just going to go for it. And, you know. Oh, do we know if this is broadcast live on Facebook or anything? Uh, I don't believe so. That is such a freaking missed opportunity because this would be a, such a fun one to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's not like they should know that this was going to be a super competitive race because it is every year and well, everybody lives here. They also are just going to just deny that the PTO is even doing anything with the Collins. <laughs> like, what's that? What's the Collins? I don't understand. That. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, Sam Long, obviously I didn't mention him cause he's a shoe in for Collins cup, but he's probably the favorite three race favorite. I'd say, I mean, pretty tough to bet against a guy the way he's been racing. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see how do you guys think the race is going to play out? And also after we talk about that, we need to talk about Garrick, our boy here, who's freaking giving her for his what third race. Hoping for his third finish of the year. Yeah. yeah. I think Lifeman's going to win, uh, Garrick Bowen second. And then Sam Appleton, and then Jackson Laundry's he's he's just gonna be there because he's he's lying. He's got a ticket. He's showing up Saturday night. 
<laughs> the race is Saturday morning. <laughs> Friday night. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, like you said, it's it's going to be – there'll be a, a group off the front. Um, like, there's some fast swimmers in there. I'm pretty sure I saw um, – where is that Canadian? Uh, oh, maybe he's not there. Um, oh, sorry, I was looking. I was looking at the wrong start list pre- previously. But uh, yeah, I mean, the Andy Potts is there. Like, there's some decent swimmers that'll probably put a gap on Sam. Sam will come through, and uh, you know, there'll be that typical pack at the front, um, and Sam will probably just go off on his own. Yeah, I think he's going to put put the boots to him on the bike as usual and try to do it that way. Um, but, yeah, I mean, when you got kind of like the um, Sam Appletons and, and guys like that, and Justin Metz was a really good swimmer, you're going to have a group that's pretty pretty fast for sure. Yeah, so, so about 15 guys to start in a group and then about 35 by the end. <laughs> um, I think that middle part of the race is really going to break stuff up. Like we're, we're going to talk about this with Leslie when she comes on, but – the roads can, are pretty rough and there's, it's fairly hilly and there's some really slow sections that um, like just grinding that I think some guys can get away and it'll split up the groups. Any rain forecasted? No, it is going to be 90 degrees, 91 degrees, uh, bone dry and it's no wind. Smoky from Oregon. And smoky. Yes. From the West coast. Bummer. Wow. Yeah. A lot of interesting. Yeah. Um, and at altitude, so it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a lot of blow ups. It's going to be hot. Fast, probably conditions for biking, but the run's going to probably be carnage. Yeah. And it's just a slow run course in general. Like the whole race is just a grind. Yep. Yeah. So what are you predicting, Garrick? What, what are you going to put together for us? Well, I'm going to over swim, over bike, and uh, try to hold it together on the run. Play your strengths, man. Go it and you go until you blow. I love that. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess probably shouldn't be. I know the, the usual thing is like you don't talk about something like this, but um I had like so I had my last long run Saturday, uh and or sun last Sunday, and right now, and like I had some pain after that, so I'm not hundred percent sure if I'm gonna do the run, but we'll see. Even if you're bleeding, even if it's not working you just drag it across the line there buddy yeah i might might walk the walk the run i'll put the shoes in transition um we'll see you'll yeah. you'll be fine man your body knows what to do and you've given it rest after uh this Moines and yeah so take your um what do you take on the run for your back nick tylenol uh take uh ambien <laughs> Tylenol and, and just CBD something or other that you Seven take. Tylenol, PMs, three Advils, and about 50 <laughs> CBD. All right, Nick's, Nick's not in the mood to give real answers today. That's all right. <laughs> all right. Okay, let's uh, – so we got some good insight from Leslie, a Boulder local, and uh, let's just kind of roll into that right now. And then after that, we have the uh, – we have Maddie Walker-Wilson, who is a Paralympian, and she's a long jumper. She had a world record. She has two world records. Or she has one current, and she's set two world records, uh, one in the 800 and one in the long jump. So wow, we're going to roll into that after. Uh, yeah, great story. Stick around for that. And then if you want to hear more about the profession of prosthetics and orthotics, you can stick around for the outro. Uh, but yeah, let's just roll into Leslie right now. All right. So we are here with our Boulder specialist. Um, Leslie Smith. Leslie, can you give us a quick run through of the course before we touch upon the women's race? Yes, I definitely can. I have done this race, oh man, since 2014 when I moved here, obviously not in 2020. So while it has changed some over the years, the it, it's usually generally pretty similar and it's almost exactly like it was in 2019. So Yes, I'm very familiar with it. Um, so starting with the swim, it is in a reservoir that I'm going to guess based on how hot it's been here that for the pros, it will be a non-wetsuit swim. I will always still bring my wetsuit, but I'm going to guess it's going to be a non-wetsuit swim. And it's pretty, you know, I, I definitely not 
pretty clear water, but it's nothing too dramatic. Like it, it shouldn't be choppy, nothing, you know, no big waves or anything like that. Is there any wildlife um, you need to be concerned about? Uh, I do not think so. So okay. who knows what's at the bottom of that reservoir, but I, I do, I don't think that I always think about that when I swim in reservoirs, but I don't think that there is the, yeah, no sharks, nothing like that. How about so, trouser snakes? Uh, oh, see, I wasn't even thinking about snakes. Thank you for bringing that up. Why are you wearing your hat like that? You just, what do you do? There, there are definitely snakes. I was running around the reservoir the other day and there was a giant snake sitting oh, yeah. on the path and I almost stepped on it. Oh God. Okay. Well, I just hope there aren't any venomous water snakes. Yeah. And actually the path at the res is probably part of the race. So hopefully they clear that off. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's the swim. And then for the bike, it's pretty much, I mean, I will say anyone who lives in Boulder, it's on a lot of roads that people ride on all the time. I would say parts of it are rolling. The back half is very fast. Uh, last real, real quick, Leslie, how long is the run from swim to T1? Because lately I've noticed they're about a mile and a quarter for every freaking race. Yeah. So that's something that will maybe be different than in 2019, but we'll know after we go to the meeting tomorrow because it wasn't that long. It's, it wasn't that long of a run in past years. It's not super short, but it's not, you know, noticeably long. So good um, question for myself to ask you about that situation. Um, okay. Do you, do you use that run from swim to um, swim to T1 as like a good opportunity to bridge up? Maybe if you're a little down or to try to catch it, do you run fast or you're just like, eh, no big deal. I try to run fast and I try to really like stride out. I, I don't think that's the way to run in the run portion of the race. You, do you know, like, but I, I do try to like pick up the pace. Sometimes it's gotten better the past few years, but there are some times where I just, especially when I've done a full Ironman race where I'm a little bit disoriented and dizzy after the swim. And so I'm just kind of trying to get my feet under me, but lately I've been hightailing it in transition. And so I, I don't really mind if they're long transitions. I think I made up a little ground in Des Moines. Anyone who did that race knows that one was super long. Yeah. Okay. So I, yeah, so I do, I do try to make up, you know, any little bit of ground helps. So, um, I know for the pros, it's a bit longer of a run, you know, to your bike, but then the bike in and out is super short. So, okay, cool. Uh, so that's, yeah, swim to bike. The bike, I would say, again, the last 15 miles-ish is pretty flat and fast. There are a couple climbs, but they're not really like mountainous climbs. They're more just a road that is a climb, but nothing crazy like a St. George climb or a Lake Placid climb or anything like that. Yeah, getting up yeah. to 63, there's some good there's like one really sharp one and then one's like yeah. super gradual to get there. That's kind of annoying, but. Yes. And then there's one that we go down and then go back up. Yeah. Uh, which in, in those climbs, the only thing I will say is those climbs, that's probably the roughest road. And Garrick, I don't know how much of it you've ridden, but those are probably the roughest roads on the course. Otherwise the course, the roads are pretty smooth. Again, especially that last 15 miles. So one thing that's good about that, and, and Garrick, I know you've been in Colorado, so you could say similar, but I, I, I'm really happy that I'm very familiar with the roads because it makes me ride a little more bold. What's your wheel choice? Hers, a little better. You're going to go disc? And stuff like that. Yes, definitely. Okay, disc rear. Disc rear. Aries 6, Rolf Prima. Yep, you got it. Okay. And I'm guessing Garrick's doing the same exact same we have definitely have an advantage with our disc because it's so light that, that is any hilly course it's still worth running a disc yeah i agree i totally agree so i think that'll be good the run is i would say unique in the sense that it's almost all off-road and i would say that it you know and garrick i don't know how much you've seen but there's nothing super trail like but the part that you can't really run on right now that they only open up on race day is this kind of cut through trail on the res that can be a little like you should watch your footing, but it's not like you're doing technical trail running or anything like that. So if you were in the Nike carbon shoes, your, your ankle rolling probability is what? <laughs> so, yeah. And for this race, I'm actually, I got, a, I was kind of due for a new pair of shoes. So I got the Asics. 
Oh yeah. And I knew you'd be excited about that. I did, I did find some and I think it will be better. And I, and I love the Nikes too, but I think these will be better for this course. Just, Oh, and Garrick too. Jeez. Oh, look at you guys all got them now. I'm so proud to be starting this ace. Nikes are still better than all those. I don't care what you say. Shut up, Jackie. Butthole. Well, yeah. And, and that's the thing. I love the Nike shoes too, but I, I think for this course, I do kind of feel like I wobble around in those Nikes and that could be a product of maybe I just need some more stability or something. I don't know. Uh, but I think for this course, I'm, I'm going to wear the Asics. So well, they're also like four inches off the ground and, you know, kind of flimsy there in the foam situation. Yeah. But they're fast. I get it. They're springy, but the Asics yeah. lower platform springy is the same. Yeah, yeah. So Nick, we're going with your vibes on not your vibes, not Jackson's vibes. Well, Jackson technically always does run way faster. Than it's just all copy the Olympians. Like, you're just like well, Whoa. that's what I was going to say. I mean, Flora Duffy definitely had a big impact on me. Uh, wait a minute. You, you can just go ahead and frig off there with that. I wore these uh, <laughs> before the Olympics, before they were all. Yeah, but that doesn't count because you've worn every shoe in history. And then you're just like, oh, I was wearing it. I was wearing it. Shut up. Nick, you are the intro. It just, I think maybe the two winners solidified that trying them out. Yeah. I'll you know it. what? That's fine. I'm actually, I'm still on the fence. I'm not sure what shoe I'm going to go with. So it's going to be a game time decision. Basic. Yeah. Do it. I'll give you five bucks. Put them both in transition and then put one of each on. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be the ultimate test. And then you would have a good shoe review, I think. I have like one calf that's like totally cramped and the other one is just like, yeah. Your left um, leg's going 530 per mile and your right leg's going 515. Well, <laughs> if either of my legs are going that fast, I'll be very pleased. So. That, that'd be a good day. And guys, let's let's not forget everyone still has to try to be a good runner as well these yeah, days. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> most okay, important. So okay. And that's where you're gonna be making up time, passing all kinds of people. Although you, are, you have been crushing the bike lately, so I wouldn't be surprised if you're way up there off the bike as well. But in 2019, you raced, you got yourself in the second place, and you had a pretty good day. Sky was kind of like... Crazy. Yeah, she rode like a 211 or something, and the course was a mile long, or mile it, like a little under a mile. Oh. So I was really happy with my time, but um, she was, yeah, she she was real fast on that day. I remember because I knew I was riding well, and then someone yelled at me, you're seven minutes back or something. And I was like, what? But that, that was impressive when she did that. And she's going to be at this race. A lot of good women are going to be at this race. And I oh just, you know, yeah. hoping for a, a good swim start for the first time in a while. I think that'll make a big impact. Can you so. the name yeah, I've got some of the, uh, there's a start list here. And there's also a lot of implications for this race for Collins Cup because it's the last race in qualification. Yeah. So, We've got um, specifically on the American women's qualification side for Collins Cup. There's just a ton of them who are doing this race and they're all really close in the qualification. So you've got a um, couple of interesting situations with Jocelyn McCauley and Chelsea Sidero who haven't raced this year because they're coming off of uh, they both had babies. Like, was it this year or late last year? I think early, late last year, early this year, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, so they both had like huge points, but they just need one race to kind of get a decent yeah. showing and, and they'll likely be in there for the qualification. And then it kind of messes everything up because they probably move up into the top four, bump a few people out of the top four, a couple people out of the top four. And then of all the people who are kind of in the, in the hunt or – um you know, in those, in the discussion for the discretionary slots, there's obviously Leslie who's eighth, uh, Lauren Brandon sitting in 10th right now. Alyssa is racing, Alyssa Duella is racing, and they're all really close on points. So really, mm -hmm. I think, you know, that the last couple spots are going to be decided in this race um, because this race does tend to give out pretty good points historically. So yeah. Well, and everybody's there. So like the points are going to be super, super prime. I know. No I pressure. So. I think we're going to see Leslie just crush this race, shoot her way up into the top six and just get that uh, discretionary slot. It's going to be awesome. Well, I thanks for the positive vibes. That's what I'm going for. And I'm pretty stoked. It's, you know, it, it's at home. And other than the heat and the subpar air quality, I'm pretty stoked it's in Boulder. 
and um, just, you know, not having to pack my bike and, you know, do all that travel stuff is, is pretty nice. And Garrett, kind of similar for you because you've already been here for a while. Yeah, I've been here for three weeks now. So yeah, still so. not quite getting used to the altitude, but yeah. But we're going to say you've had, you, you'll, you'll be good. And the thing I think with the altitude is, you know, what, whether you live here or do not live here or how long you've been here, everyone's a little bit slower at altitude. I would say maybe the bike that's questionable because of the thinner air. So maybe that doesn't count, but I think that altitude will come into play in this race for everyone versus everyone when they race at sea level. Yeah. I don't know if that was an insightful point or even made sense, but it's just about restructuring like your mindset and just not yes. worrying about the times, but just sitting in that effort zone. Yes. I think. Yeah, for sure. Totally. I'm going to start loading up on positive from here every meal now until the race pretty much. Yep. Pasta um, with maple syrup, pasta with milk, pasta and maple syrup and ice cream. That's all you need. Um, but yeah, also it looks like there's some, some, you know, potential movers on the international side for the women. Um, yeah. We've got Marina Carfrey, who hasn't raced in a long time as well, jumping into this one, who could, you know, with a good showing, she could definitely get a discretionary slot. Um, yeah. Mr. Bear is in there as well. Uh, and then a, a couple others who are already kind of auto-qualified. So, yeah. Um, any word if uh, Taylor Nib, the Olympian, is oh, filling up Oh, you know, I don't know. I've been wondering that as well. And I meant to try to, you know, look on Instagram and stuff like that, but I haven't yet. Just notice that too. That's crazy. Wow. That would be, that would make it, that'd be super cool. Yeah. Well, anywho, I think you're going to do really well. I think you're ready, both you guys, but um, anything else you want to say about the race, Leslie, what do you, you know, any pre-race thoughts, you know, psych out the competition because everybody in the world listens to this podcast. So <laughs> my pre-race thoughts are just, kind of like normal, just trying to get everything in order, get to the start line, get through the swim start, and then just try to keep a clear mind and suffer. And wherever that gets me, that will be where I'm at. That's not a very exciting answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, but it's a good answer. That's what I would say too. I'd be like, well, I'm going to go out there and do everything I freaking can wherever I freaking end up. That's what freaking happens. Yep. Great. Thanks, Nick. Yes, that too. Like you said, like you said. Thanks for hanging out with us and go drop off your bike and just chill, relax, put the legs up and just be human for a minute before you yep. get one. I will. Well, it was good to see you guys. You too. All right. So we are here with Maddie Wilson Walker. Maddie, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm good. How are you? I'm uh, doing all right. So I should probably also introduce my co-host here, Danny Gieselman. Yes, well yeah. done. Dude. Big uh, pitcher over at Michigan State. Uh, so Maddie, have you been watching, keeping up with any of the Olympics? Yeah, I've been watching the track and field pretty much every single day since it started. And I actually did watch the, uh, the women's triathlon as well. Nice. Did you uh, watch the men's decathlon last yes, night by any yes. chance? Yes, Damien's my favorite able-bodied Canadian athlete, so I watched every single one. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah, that was quite the performance. Um, so, yeah, let's start. Let's kind of start here. So you're uh, a para-athlete, a, a real athlete, and you're just a I, – I don't really like saying, like, para-athlete because you are an athlete. You obviously – you um, you have a world record, do you not? Um, I did have a world record for the long jump back in 2019. I held it for maybe a month or so. Uh, but then another athlete from the Netherlands, her name's Fleur Zhang. She went out and beat it. Uh, she's an amazing athlete. So it was okay that she beat it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then before there was a little switch up with the classifications for the amputees a few years back, I held the world record for the 800 meter for my category. And I guess technically I still do because it's not an event anymore and the classifications have changed since then. So technically I still have it, but it's just not recorded anywhere right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got it. 
yeah. fastest ever. So it was there I, forever, it seems like. So that's that's amazing. yeah, that's more than I can say, more than Danny can say for sure, because he's not very fast at anything. But <laughs> uh, so let's start kind of with your journey. Like, just take us all the way back. Like, who is Maddie? Where'd you come from? How'd you get into sport? You know? Okay. Uh, so growing up, I did a bunch of different sports because my I live with my grandparents and they wanted me to live as much of a normal life as possible, even though I have this disability and I was different than a lot of kids that I went to school with. So growing up, I did uh, figure skating, horseback riding, golf. I did track and field day and cross country in elementary school, but I really wasn't that into it. And I guess I should probably start with how I lost my legs, but I, I was three years old and I got meningitis, septicemia and gangrene. So I had to have both my legs amputated below the knee as well as four of my fingers on my left hand. And then from all the medication that I was on in the hospital when I was healing, I ended up going fully deaf in my left ear. Um, but even though I had this disability. Like I said, my grandparents wanted me to find something that I could do and enjoy. So I did all those sports growing up. And then when I got to high school, I just really wanted to be in like a sports team and be involved with the school a lot more because a lot of my friends were really athletic. They're on the basketball team, volleyball team. So in my grade nine year, I went out for the golf team and I was horrible at it and I went to a really small high school I went to Lord Dorchester I don't know if you've heard of it at all but it's very small high school and I was the only girl on the team so I didn't really enjoy it that much so I quit after the first season and then I went and tried out for the volleyball team but I did not go back after the first tryout because I got hit in the face so many times. I was like, this is not for me. I'm not going back there. And I was kind of discouraged at first because I really wanted to find something that could be my thing and something that I could be known for because with my sports outside of school, I wasn't horrible at them, but I was just sort of average. And I just wanted to find something that I could be more than average at. And my best friend to this day, she's on the track team. And she said, why don't you try out throwing for track and field? Because when you hear track and field, most people automatically think of running. And I told her, I am not running. No way. You can't catch me doing that. And uh, so I started throwing and I threw the javelin. And again, I was horrible at it. And the coach at my high school approached me one day at a track meet. And he's like, Maddie, you're not good at the javelin, but we do have a para sprint category because he knew that I was a double amputee. And so the next meet, I signed up for the 100 meter and I was still running in my day legs. I didn't have running blades at this point because I was so new to the sport and I really didn't know how far I was going to go with it. But after that first meet, I was immediately hooked and I loved it. And then, of course, I was now running when I said I wasn't going to run at all. Um, and then throughout the years of high school, I started to develop a lot more as an athlete. And by my grade 11 year, I started to get recognized at meets and I had athletes and coaches approaching me. I started to beat able-bodied athletes, which is always a good feeling. Um, and then I made it my goal to represent Canada at the 2015 World Championships. And at the time, I didn't really know how much of a chance I would have because I was only 17. So I would have been one of the youngest on the team. And there's a lot of good athletes that I was up against. But I ended up making the team. So I went to the world championships that year and they were in Doha, Qatar. And then I was in the 100, 200 and 400. And my best finishing there was a sixth place in the 400 meter final. And then after that, I entered university and I still am in university. I go to University of Western Ontario. And I run on the track team there for the Mustangs. And then throughout the years after 2015, 
I was one spot away from going to Rio. So that was a really big disappointment. I was kind of devastated for a while. And then I went through some mental health uh, problems for the next couple of years with being injured and stuff like that. And then finally, I got better in 2019. And then I made the Para Pan Am team and the uh, Para World Championships team as well. So and I didn't qualify for Tokyo this year. Uh, they only brought six girls, which is a really, really small team. And because of COVID and everything. So I was a bit disappointed, but I'm still young. I'm only 24. So should be in the sport a little bit longer. So hopefully I can qualify for uh, Paris 2024. Wow. Um, that's quite the story. So you're like, when we talk about athletes, you're one of the top athletes in Canada. Like when people talk about track and field in Canada, it's like Maddie Wilson Walker. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so the mental health as an athlete getting injured, I, we've talked, talked about that a lot on the podcast and it's such a common thing because your, you, your identity is like as an athlete and when you're injured, you just, you can't do that. And you, you kind of have like this existential crisis and you're like, well, who am I if I can't compete? Um, and I think so many of us have been there. What is the support? Like, not just for like the mental health, but as an athlete, competing for um, like Canada being, uh, I assume you're nationally funded. I would just, uh, yeah. 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 So what's that support like for you on the team um, as not only an able-bodied athlete, but also just like para athletes. Like in terms of like mental health and stuff. Um, not just mental health, but just like coaching and facility access um, and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, so I guess for, coaching. So I have two coaches. Um, their names are Derek Johnson, who is my sprint coach, because I obviously need to be quite fast to jump far. So I work with him for sprints. And right from the get go, he was very adapting when I came to Western because he had never coached a para athlete before. And I'm somebody who, like, I already stick out enough. It's super obvious that I'm missing both my legs so I don't want to stick out any more than I have to so I like to have the same workouts as everybody else and I don't like to have special treatments or less to do because I have a disability so right from the get-go he gave me everything that all the able body athletes on the team had and that was something I really liked about him and same with my jumps coach Frank Earl he's the exact same way um, if I don't do something right or something malfunctions with my legs or something, he'll throw a little roast at me in practice. <laughs> That's always fun. And uh, the coaches at Athletics Canada too, they're, they're amazing people and they'll, they'll really help you. And when I was going through a lot, they're always there if I needed to talk and same with the sports psych, I would always see or a nutritionist. There's always somebody there that's willing to help you. So I really appreciate that from them. Yeah, I feel like that's something that a lot of people who listen to this podcast are triathletes and they're not quite familiar on what kind of support athletes get at the national level. So what, for athletes who were young and perhaps were in the same situation as you where they're really trying to find their their path uh, in sport, if like for para-athletes, because it is something that seems like it's it's difficult to access especially if you're not in that world and you don't know. So would you have any advice or any resources for them? Yeah. Um, so when I, when I first started in track and field, I knew about the Paralympics, but I didn't really know that much or how big it could be. Um, so I would say for the young athletes that are up and coming that have disabilities and want to try out a sport, um, just try everything. Try everything until you find that one thing that you really enjoy and can be really good at. Because if you want to make a career out of a sport, you want to make sure you're also having fun while you're doing it. So I definitely just try everything out until you find that thing that can be your thing. Um, and then Athletics Canada and the Canadian Paralympic Committee would be a good spot to 
search up some stuff because I know that there's a lot of um, like Paralympic uh, triad days or uh, they'll have, I think it's called like a Paralympic search or something where anyone that has a disability can come out and try a bunch of track and field events and then kind of like go from there and pick one and see if they want to pursue a career in track and field. So something like that. So I do have a quick question for you in terms of, so when you're traveling, so like when you talked about going to Qatar and you're going to these really far away places, do you have a prosthetist that travels with you guys in case of like malfunctioning in the components (laughs) or stuff like that? Yeah. So we, Athletics Canada doesn't like, we personally don't have one. Um, that's just dedicated to our team. But normally, every single event that I've been to, there's normally either like a OSER or an Autobox um, kind of station. And they have like their workers there just in case something does come up, which it normally does. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, we don't personally have our own, but there's always like a group of them there. Nice. Well, if Athletics Canada is ever looking for a prosthetist, to fly out and stuff they can reach out to me danny gieselman would be really excited yeah (laughs) i'd be more than happy you know to travel with the team whether it's to qatar to tokyo like you know i'll be there i'll be there your name (laughs) that's awesome so what are your goals kind of going forward obviously you're young you're 24 you still got if you're running and you're jumping you've got so much time left like in the olympics there's like 30 year olds still jumping, you know, like you've got yeah. tons of time. You've probably got two more Olympic cycles at least. So, Oh, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So you got Paris on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, what else, what are your big goals kind of going forward? So my next big goal would be to make the world's team for 2022. They're in Oregon and then there's the Pan Am team in 2023. And then uh, the Paralympics again in 2024 so just kind of following that timeline and just keep getting better every year and being the best athlete that I can be. And then when I retire from the sport, which hopefully that's not for a while, um, then I would like to work with kids who have disabilities because growing up, I was the only kid that had a disability in my friend group, at my school, on my track team. And I really didn't have anyone to look up to that was a high performance athlete that also happened to have a disability. So I'd love to work with kids, getting them into a sport, whether that's track and field or something different and maybe do some coaching and stuff like that. So something along the lines of that. Yeah, I think that'd be super powerful for the pair athletes to have a coach that's like them, because like you said, all your coaches are able-bodied and most of them had never worked with an amputee before so I feel like that that could that could go really well for you and I'm sure you could change a lot of lives and help a lot of people with that guide a lot of young souls yeah Yeah. that's gotta be a pretty cool inspiration for I mean what you're doing right now and when you're training and stuff having that in the back of your mind too not just Mm -hmm. personal goals for you but also knowing that you succeeding and you constantly doing better and better. Everyone else is seeing that and getting inspired by that. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Cause I've seen how far and what sport has done for me and how much of a positive impact it's made in my life. So I would really want to do that for somebody else as well. Yeah. And kind of helping someone. Cause like you really had to forge your own path and find your own way there. Obviously there were like you mentioned before, your grandparents and coaches that really helped you along the way, but you didn't have any like like any athletes that you were able to look up to that you could follow in their in their journey and their path, and you really so that was you know it's pretty cool that you made it this far, um, and I'm sure you're an inspiration to a lot of people listening right now. So, oh yeah, I do. I did see. I mean, we did a little stalking on you before just to <laughs> see what see what you're all about and I happen to see that aside from both of your legs I yeah I saw your hands at least one of them maybe were affected from the meningitis as well yeah on my left hand I have my fingers amputated yeah 
and I have like this big gnarly scar down my arm as well. <laughs> so is that a learning curve on its own in terms of trying to figure out how to like don your prostheses with that or? Um, not really. It's always been kind of normal to me since I'm very lucky that when I got amputated, I was so young because I don't remember anything at all with real legs. So I don't really know what I'm missing. So it's just kind of been normal. And like, there's certain things that I can't do because of my hand or I might not be able to like grip something as well. But like, I think because I still have my thumb and majority of my fingers, like there's not one that's fully gone then I can do it like pretty much as normal, but yeah. How was growing up um, as an amputee in a small town? You said you grew up in Dorchester? Yeah, just outside of Dorchester, yeah. Okay, yeah, so that's, yeah, that's small town Ontario. Yeah. Um, how was it just growing up as the only amputee? Um, Like it, it just kind of, like I said, it just felt normal. I... I didn't really feel that lonely or anything. And I'm really lucky that I didn't have to deal with really any bullying. Um, I never really got made fun of for my disability, not to my face anyways. Um, I think cause I've always been so open about it that people realized that if they were to make a joke about my legs, I'd probably make a funnier joke about it back. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, it's just been kind of, normal I don't really know the difference between being an amputee and not being one so yeah yeah and uh have you had your same prosthetist your whole life um I had I, I don't remember his name but I went to one out of London till I was about maybe six or so and then I started seeing uh Bill Chupé true yeah it was yeah. probably Dan um I can't remember Dan's last name uh, my last one, I see you got a fun sign in your room behind you. A lot, of, uh, a lot of paragraphs written, I assume, about you. What is, what is that about? Um, so at Western, uh, one of the higher meets that you can go to is OUA. And I was the first um, para-athlete um, at Western. And I made the OUA team in my first and second year. And so each year we go to OUAs, we make a sign with our name on it. And then our teammates can come around. We can like sign each other's like uh, signs and say like good luck and stuff like that. So that's from first year uni up there. But Nice. <laughs> oh, how far? Have, what's your personal best for your jump? For uh, 4.32. 0.2? 4.32, yeah. Oh, 4.32. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And then, but there, I think it was last summer. I, I had a huge jump, but it was like, it was a super small foul because on the long jump board, like you can't be over the board, right? Or it doesn't yeah. count. But on the long jump board, there's also like probably about like an inch or so of red tape and you can't even be on the red tape either. And I, my spikes, like it was barely on it, but it was, and it was a 510. So it didn't count. Well, Oh. I was like, can you measure that so I know what that is? Because I like, there's no way that's in the four meters. And so then they measured it. I was like, oh, God damn. It so close. Um, that would if you if you were in Tokyo, that would get you pretty, pretty high up there with a five ten. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, right now, even with my four thirty-two in my category, I'm ranked third in the world. Um, and then but because I'm mixed with the single egg amputee it brings my ranking down but uh yeah I would definitely be in the top 10 right now still but with the 510 I'd be easily making the top eight to get those last uh three round jumps so yeah hopefully by Paris I can be doing the five meters <laughs> you know you have that in you so yeah <laughs> yeah you know it's there the long jump's funny because like sometimes you just hit it and you just fly and you can just be like, mm -hmm. you can overthink it so much. And you just like have, you just in this like rut where you just can't do it. And then you just break through and just take off. It's like, uh, mm -hmm. there was a meet, there was a meet this summer that I went to and like, I was hitting the board perfectly in warm up, And then during the competition, 
because there was only like six of us, we were all getting all six jumps and I faulted every single one. And I was like, you've got to be joking me. So then I go to my next meet the week after I fall every single jump again. I was like, what the heck? I'm like, I'm going to move my mark like five meters back from where I stand. And then the next meet I faulted all but one. And uh, it's so annoying too, because the best jumps are always the faults. And, but yeah, that's sport of long jump, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I guess high jump and uh, pole vault can be the same thing. It's, yep, it can be frustrating to watch too when you yeah. you're when you're invested in it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, um, I think that's pretty much it. Danny, you got anything else? That's it for me, Garrick. Well, Maddie, that was awesome. Thank you very much for jumping on. Um, kind of on a whim coming on a triathlon podcast and talking about <laughs> everything. Um, thank you for being so open about everything too. I know some people just aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously not everyone is acquires it so young. Um, but that was, yeah, that was great. So yeah, if uh, athletics Canada, you know, they can reach out to me. I'm at loan prosthetic <laughs> services in Windsor. So <laughs> i'll they pass can. that along <laughs> yeah and i mean we we work with runners all the time so we uh and well sledge hockey obviously yeah but yeah so um yeah bye i'm just kidding they don't have to they just <laughs> all, right. all right so that was a great interview with maddie there uh, again maddie if you're listening thank you very much for coming on really appreciate it I think one thing, Danny and I, since we're kind of living in the profession, one thing we should do is maybe like touch upon what is prosthetics and I guess orthotics too, because it's it's kind of two in one there. A lot of people, when they think of prosthetics, they think of like robotics and these super cool microprocessor arms, knees and stuff. And then orthotics, they're like, it's just foot orthotics, you know, or, um, and I guess something we should really clear up before we move on here is that. It is not a foot orthotic. It is a foot orthosis. True. I've been going on with, going back and forth with my dad for about six months on that terminology, but we'll finally make it work. Yes. So it is an orthosis. An orthotic is, uh, it's just a, what is an orthotic? It's orthotic not- is more so the overarching concept of, you know, yes. brace. Exactly. Exactly. And then orthosis is the exact, is the actual device. Correct. And then prosthetics and prosthesis. So it's a prosthesis, but uh, that one doesn't really get mixed up too much. Uh, I guess we could ask what, what are orthotics and prosthetics, Danny? Do you, would you happen to have like a book answer that you could provide to me? Well, Garrick, uh, I would consider i talk if when i'm thinking about orthotics and prosthetics i more so just kind of look at it in terms of what we looking for as clinicians and pretty much the reason we got in this field and what we know we're going to be doing is basically just seeing patients coming in evaluating the patients uh fabricating and fitting either for prosthetics artificial limbs or in terms of orthotics, uh, orthopedic braces, uh, stuff like that for patients who need them to either correct or accommodate certain deformities or uh, absences of limbs. Yeah, so that kind of covers what it is and what we do. Um, One thing that I don't think people really know is that we're really like an allied health care profession. So we work with a team. And the prosthetist or the orthotist is just one member of that team. We're also working with physios, or as you might call them, physical therapists, uh, occupational therapists. You're working with the um, with the doctor, which is... Well, yes, we're also working with maybe surgeons as physiatrists, well. Physiatrists, yeah. And you're also PM&R working... with doctors. Yep. PM&R, the physiatrists. And those, that's kind of the, that's the team that we all work all works together for for that care 
Um, and then, you know, after we meet with them, we get the, the plan. It's up to us to really fabricate, fit, and adjust. And, uh, yeah, it takes, it takes a while. I'll tell you what, Garrick, in terms of uh, what, what we do as clinicians heading into this field, I really, at the beginning, learned my, uh, I'd say I'm not the greatest artistically and with fabrication. And that is one thing that this field has really opened my eyes and gotten me excited about is what we're going to do in terms of actually making these devices for patients. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly hands-on. It's probably the most hands-on pra- or field in healthcare. Healthcare, honestly. Yeah. Uh, it's really, there is a whole like trade component to it that people don't really know to really know. And you're, ba- you're basically dealing with, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but we're basically doctors with hand skills. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um that's that's not not really true but we uh like to think so though yeah but we do have a you know like a a very good understanding of anatomy um physiology and yeah engineering all that kind of stuff uh because you know when it does come to fabrication we have to take the measurements we have to take the shape capture which is actually really changing in our field it used to be plaster casts that we used to do uh and now you you can really you can like scan a limb um and then you can send it to either a carver to carve out a blank which is an exact replica of that limb or we're kind of moving into 3d printing where you can like 3d print a device whether it's a socket or a brace and uh but yeah but after the cast you know we got to modify that because we have to if we're talking prosthetics specifically you know that device has to suspend itself on on a patient so for us you know we're, we're modifying that and then we are fabricating the socket that goes around that and that whether that could be uh plastic it could be fiberglass it could be um carbon and it can be acrylic so there is kind of a lot going on that a lot of people just don't realize all right. So, and then with this field too, one thing I kind of want to get into because it is a relatively, in terms of being a clinician, a relatively small field being that we have, as I believe, 12, 11, 12 programs in the country that Some make a certified clinician for both orthotics and prosthetics and provide that uh, master of science degree in the field. And I kind of wanted to give an idea of both what Garrick and I at least studied beforehand and kind of what got us into this field too. So like for me, I had a background in uh, kind of almost like a medical student. I had a major in human biology, uh, was kind of set for my first two years of undergrad on a pre-med track to be a doctor until I, first time I stepped foot in a uh, O&P clinic, saw what this field has to offer and immediately just drew me in seeing how cool it is and how much you can impact someone's life in terms of getting them to walk, uh, making them feel good, just everything. So for me, at least my background was in like health science and medicine. Uh, I know some people have backgrounds that are in art, which helps them a lot more with the fabrication right off the bat. And then I don't know, Garrick, not sure. Yeah. Well, I came in with, uh, exercise science. So I did human kinetics, which is physiology, um, and anatomy and, uh, yeah. And then obviously I studied a year of technical as well in prosthetics. And then I came to the program for clinical. Yeah, it's true. We do. There are some students that come in with the uh, arts degrees it's kind of rare but it's you can get into this field with almost anything as long as you satisfy the prerequisites as long as you have your biology your chemistry your physics um and but yeah so and anatomy so you need you do need a, a good understanding coming into that but with the amount of plaster work that we do yeah some of the art students do 
made, made me look not as great at the very beginning is what I'll say. Yeah, but eventually, like, you get there, and we, we all get there. Um, like you said, like, you know, that's why you're in school is to learn this. Um, yeah, and you said, like, you were doing your clinical rotations this summer, and you really jumped up. Like, it's something you hadn't seen. You hadn't really been able to work. Most people haven't worked in the field going into school. They may be shadowed to kind of get an understanding of what it's like and what you have to do, but you don't get a lot of that hands-on experience until you're in school. But once you graduate school, like you're ready, you can get there and then you do your residency. So um, after school, yeah, it's a two years master's degree in the US. Um, it's two years in Canada. It's two years of, usually you have to do two years of tech and then two years of, um, it's a college, it's a college program. And, uh, and then, in the states, you do an 18 18-month residency, which covers both prosthetics and orthotics. And then, if you're in Canada, you specialize in either prosthetics or orthotics, and that's a two years re two year residency of either or. So there's a little bit of a, a difference in the system there. Uh, like in Canada, you would never go see a prosthetist orthotist. You would go see a prosthetist or an orthotist because they kind of favor this like specialization in the field. Yeah, but with in the states too, they do offer both a 18 month residency option where you simultaneously you get certified with both, or you get to the option of spending one full year, full 12 month uh, residency in both uh, fields. So either both orthotics and prosthetics. So that's one thing also that differs. And then once you finish the residency, you, you take some uh, three different board exams for both orthotics and then for prosthetics as well to be able to, to we get our, you get your master's degree once you graduate school, but then you have to actually prove that you're ready to be a clinician, <laughs> which uh, then that gives you the certification and gives you the title of being a CPO. Correct. So, so Dan, Danny, where do we work? <laughs> where do we um, work, Derek? So well, that's, uh, I guess we kind of work everywhere. So you can do private practice there at hospitals. We do visit rehabilitation facilities. Um, it can even be specialty clinics and home and uh, yeah, home health settings. And then yeah, they can we visit do through their houses if they need us. Yeah, and um, nursing homes as well. So, now everyone, when they hear about prosthetics, they think of, you know, this like soldier that's like super fit and like, you know, he's got this like microprocessor knee. And, you know, he's like getting back and he's like playing basketball and stuff like that. But like, who do we really see? Like, who is the real patient population? Um, I think, Danny, you can take this one away. All right. So over about in terms of prosthetics, about a little over 70 percent of the or not 70, 60, like a little over 60 percent. So about 65 percent of the patients that we actually see for prosthetics are disease related. So a lot of that is from vascular disease, amputations due to vascular disease, due to complications with uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, peripheral neuropathy coming from that or elsewhere. Um, so it's not, I, I learned quickly, a, more so a lot of prosthetics in the prosthetic field is treating patients that from have a pathology relating to disease as opposed to trauma. Yeah, trauma is maybe a quarter of prosthetic patients. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And uh, it's unfortunate that a lot of what we see, I think, um, is vascular disease. And that's the reason for amputation. And that does I, differ greatly, though, for pediatric population yes uh, yeah. so well with the pediatric population the majority of amputations or at least uh prostheses that we are 
uh, developing for the children are due to congenital. Yeah, but kind of just touching back on that. So most people that do lose their leg via peripheral vascular disease or so forth, that what's that five-year probability of them losing their second leg? Is It's over 50%, is it not? Yes, it is. Yeah, um, which is hard to see. And you don't like seeing that, but it, no. it is very frequent. So, um, yeah, and then orthotics is pretty even, especially, uh, well, for the patient pop distribution, I think it's very even, like pediatric, adult, geriatric, it's like one-third of each is pretty even. Like, yeah, about a, about a third of each pop, patient population you see is. Yeah, and then uh, the disease is less than 50%. Um, trauma is maybe a quarter, same with congenital. So, which actually for, you go from what, 9%, 10% for prosthetics to like almost 30% for congenital in orthotics. So in that orthotic field, you're working a lot more with, with children. Um, yes. Yeah. So uh, what people, obviously when they think of orthotics, we kind of talked about this, they think of like a foot orthosis. Yes, exactly. But like what exactly does an orthotist do and like how do they improve someone's quality of life outside of you know turning and burning foot orthoses at the door so usually as uh in the orthotics realm and as an orthotist certified orthotist then you're seeing patients who are referred to you by a either a more usually a primary care physician and they give us a broad overview of what they believe that they saw and what they see and their idea for a recommendation for uh, orthotic treatment. So whether that be a child who has scoliosis and then we make them a back brace or a scoliosis brace to help correct and or help accommodate and hopefully correct some of their curve or whether it be in still with the pediatric realm, a child who has plagiocephaly. So um, we, that's just the malformation in the growth of their head. So that's one thing where when you see babies who have helmets on their head, that's one thing we do where we help try to correct and uh, make their head grow normally. So when they grow older and you don't see those abnormalities in the shape of their head. Uh, and then more so for adults too, it's, you don't really see those things, but you see either a adult patient who is struggling to walk. Maybe they have drop foot from either an injury they had to their peroneal nerve, something like that, where then you kind of know and are given an idea of what you're going to be fitting them with in terms of a brace for their leg. However, it's our job to then evaluate them, see how they walk, see the biomechanics of actually watch their gait, uh, see if there's anything else going on that wasn't first noted. And then in also be able to give them a treatment that one is going to help that while two, they'll enjoy it still and actually want to use it. Yeah, exactly. So you know, there's a lot going on, um, as an orthotist and, and as a prosthetist. So if someone's listening to this and they want to get into this field, um, I guess we kind of touched upon what they need to know. Uh, you kind of, you need that biology, you need that chemistry, you need that physics, you need that anatomy, uh, that, those skills coming in, you need to have formally studied that in school prior and then there are, like we said, it's like 11 or 12 schools in the U.S. And there are two in Canada. Uh, if you're an East Coaster, there is one. Um, there's George Brown and um, BCIT are the two schools that you can go to. So BCIT is for Western students. And Usually also in addition to education requirements, the, most schools do also at least require some job shadowing hours too beforehand so that you have one 
like a baseline and you've seen kind of what the field has to offer. So you're not kind of going into school blindsided with what we learn. And then also just kind of give you more of a overall excitement for what field we're getting into. Yeah. And so if someone is interested in applying uh, in Canada, you can go to those schools websites in the U S you can go to, it is OPCAS, O-P-C-A-S, uh, and that is where you can apply. You can go to the um, NCOPE website, which is the which is N-C-O-P-E, uh, and they have a list of all the schools on there. That is the um, Education Accreditation Board, and so they will tell you all the accredited schools. You can apply there, um, or you can find out where they are there, and then you can apply an OPCAS, which is how we got into school, and... Um, is there really anything else to, to touch upon? I guess we could I mean, talk about, cause you and I both are at the best OMP school. At Eastern yes. Michigan. Yeah. We are at Eastern Obviously. Michigan. Uh, I mean, Eastern's board exam pass rate, you know, is above the national average every single year. So yeah, and 100% of students at Eastern that graduate, get a accredited residency. So, you know, got a tour yeah. on the horn here a little bit, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah, it is one of the top schools. Um, it's it's a newer school, so it doesn't have that like hoity-toity old school reputation like Western or um, Northwestern has. Uh, but yeah, like Danny said, it is well above average when it comes to passing the board exams, and we always have a hundred percent residency uh, rate to getting a residency. Which is if you went to school and you can't get a residency. That sucks because then you can't get certified uh, or if you don't pass your boards. So that also sucks. But that is um, one thing Eastern does really help with, too, that I'm looking forward to. And at least our second year, Eastern provides a lot of uh, opportunities to learn and get you prepared for your board exams, as well as to perform well at your residencies. Exactly. So. So that is uh, it for now. If you made it this far into the podcast, thank you very much. Uh, Jake, our professor, is listening. Thanks for listening, Jake. Uh, <laughs> Love you, Jake. So, Danny, uh, you probably never listened to this podcast, but there's a special oh. way that we sign out. Okay. So when I say peace, you got to say out, but in the most Canadian way possible. All right, I'm ready. All right, so ready? How many so, U's is in it? Uh, it's about four U's. Okay, perfect. Okay. All right, so until next time, peace. Woot. <laughs>